Hello, and welcome to the June 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up, we are recording this only two days after the worst mass shooting in American history. 49 people were killed and another 53 were injured early Sunday morning at the Pulse Gay Nightclub in Orlando, Florida. There's not much to discuss about the incidents, incident of a legal nature, but I did want to take a couple minutes of this podcast to remember the victims by reading their names and ages. Uh, I apologize ahead of time if I mispronounce anyone's name, but I'm going to do my best. Stanley Almodovar III, 23, Amanda Alvier, 25, Oscar A. Aracena Montero, 26, Rodolfo Ayala Ayala, 33, Antonio David Brown, 29, Daryl Roman Burt II, 29, Angel L. Candelario Padro, 28, Juan Jevez Martinez, 25, Louis Daniel Cond, 39, Corey James Connell, 21, Tevin Eugene Crosby, 25, Dianca Deidre Drayton, 32, Simon Adrian Carrillo Fernandez, 31, Leroy Valentin Fernandez, 25, Mercedes Marisol Flores, 26, Peter O. Gonzalez Cruz, 22, Juan Ramon Guerrero, 22, Paul Terrell Henry, 41, Frank Hernandez, 27, Miguel Angel Honorado, 30. Javier Jorge Reyes, 40. Jason Benjamin Josephat, 19. <clears throat> Eddie Amaldroy Justice, 30. Anthony Luis Laura Ando Anadodisla, 25. Christopher Andrew Leninen, 32. Alejandro Barrios Martinez, 21. Brenda Lee Marquez McCool, 49. Alberto Ramon Silva Menendez, 25. Kimberly Morris, 37. Akira Monette Murray, 18. Luis Omar Ocasio Capo, 20. Geraldo A. Ortiz Jimenez, 25. Eric Ivan Ortiz Rivera, 36. Joel Reon Peniagua, 32. Jean Carlos Mendez Perez, 35. Enrique L. Rios, Jr., 25. Jean G. Neves Rodriguez, 27. Javier Emmanuel Serrando Rosado, 35. 
Christopher Joseph Sanfeliz, 24. Yomeri Rodriguez Solivan, 24. Edward Sotomayor, Jr., 34. Shane Evan Tomlinson, 33. Martin Benitez Torres, 33. Jonathan Antonio Camoy Vega, 24. Juan P. Rivera Velazquez, 37. Luis L. Vielma, 22. Frankie Jimmy De Jesus Velazquez, 50. Luis Daniel Wilson Leon, 37. And Gerald Arthur Wright, 31. All right, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss all of the activity that has erupted over the last month in response to North Carolina's HB2. We are back discussing the cover story from this month's issue of Law Notes, and that is the flurry of competing moves over the last month in reaction to North Carolina's House Bill 2. Can you bring us up to speed, Art? Yeah, and first I want to say hello to everyone. This is the first time I'm talking on this podcast, and uh, to congratulate you on the innovative and wonderful headlines that you've been writing for the, for the cover page of, of Law Notes. Try to grab people. Uh, this month, it is bathroom brouhaha, and that is a fact. Bathroom brouhaha. So uh, what's going on? Uh, it's, it's like a moving target uh, with, with almost daily developments. But we have basically uh, lawsuits now emanating from North Carolina, from Mississippi, from Texas, from Illinois, all raising in one way or another the question of whether Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972 uh, mandates that educational institutions uh, subject to it must allow transgender people to use facilities consistent with their gender identity. Uh, also in play in some of these cases is whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 requires employers uh, to uh, make facilities available to employees consistent with their gender identity. And, and the broader question, of course, uh, which is implicated in all these cases in one way or another, is whether federal laws banning sex discrimination can be broadly interpreted to cover gender identity discrimination as a form of sex discrimination. Uh, this, uh, the passage of HB2, of course, as we've spoken of in, in past months, uh, in March by the North Carolina legislature was in response to the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, adopting a non-discrimination ordinance that includes gender identity and sexual orientation and making very clear as part of the uh, legislative history and the application of that ordinance that all entities that are subject to it must allow uh, access to restroom facilities to transgender people consistent with their gender identity. And the underlying theory behind the position on Title IX, which has been taken by the Department of Education and the Justice Department, and on Title VII, which has been taken by the EEOC, is that transgender people are people who identify as being of a gender different than the one identified for them at their birth. When people are born 
by visual inspection, the doctor takes a look and says male or female, and that's what goes down on the birth certificate. But we know now that that is not the only criterion of deciding what someone's gender is. That gender is a complicated thing, and that we can't know what someone's gender is until they grow up enough to be able to communicate that to us by their actions and their feelings and their speech. Uh, so the gender that's marked on someone's birth certificate is really not the final word. And there are many people in this country who disagree with that based on their religious beliefs, based on uh, the way they see the world functioning. But medical science has come around mostly. There's a forming consensus that gender identity is a real thing. It isn't just that someone has some kind of mental disorder that they uh, don't understand, they're confused or something like that. It's that gender identity is a part of someone's identity. And so a transgender man, even though identified as a woman at birth, a transgender man is someone who is a man. This is the position that the EEOC is taking now. And that means they're entitled to be treated as a man and to be provided with all the facilities that are provided by an employer or a place of public accommodation, if you're talking about uh, civil rights laws that ban sex discrimination, uh, that are open to men. Now, there is a history and tradition in our country, as has been pointed out in many of these decisions, regardless which way you go on the ultimate merits, of segregating by sex restroom facilities, locker rooms, things of that sort. Uh, so the question isn't whether an employer can designate something as a men's room and a women's room or in school, a boy's room or a girl's room. The question is who is a man, who is a woman for purposes of these classifications. And that's the battle that's being fought out. So where we have litigation in North Carolina in response to HB2, uh, within days of it being signed into law, by the end of March, there was a lawsuit on file brought by the local North Carolina ACLU Foundation together with the National ACLU and Lambda. And uh, they have several uh, state go government employees who were affected by HB2. Uh, in response to the filing of that lawsuit, uh, Governor Patrick McCrory, who continues to defend HB2, issued an executive order banning discrimination in the executive branch of the state government based on gender identity or sexual orientation. But at the same time, of course, saying, I can't by executive order repeal HB2, that remains in effect. And that remains the rule. And he is going to the mat defending that rule. Uh, the argument that he uses is uh, partly a danger argument that somehow uh, allowing uh, transgender people to have access to the facilities consistent with their gender identity will give cover to heterosexual men who want to attack women to go into restrooms by declaring themselves to be women. This is, of course, absurd. Uh, and I think he and, and others who are defending these uh, bathroom laws, which go the opposite way uh, from uh, the uh, construction of the EEOC and the, the Justice Department and the Education Department, these bathroom laws like HB2, like the Mississippi law, uh, that's being contested in federal court, like a uh, recent resolution in Tennessee, like bills that have been uh, introduced in various states, and including a bill in Congress. Uh, there's now a bill in Congress to uh, make, make sure that in the restroom facilities in the Capitol building in Washington, transgender people will not be allowed to use uh, the facilities consistent with their gender identity. Uh, there's a new argument 
uh, and the argument was really stimulated by the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a right-wing Christian litigation group which specializes in opposing gay rights and, and transgender rights wherever they can find them. And they filed a lawsuit on behalf of a bunch of parents in a school district in Illinois who are upset by the settlement of a Title IX case that had been pending against the school district on behalf of a transgender high school student. Uh, under the settlement, the transgender high school students and all transgender students in that school district will have access to appropriate restroom facilities. Uh, so these parents and uh, their children, represented by ADF, raised this argument of a fundamental constitutional right of privacy with respect to their bodies. And they claim that this right of privacy encompasses the right not to be exposed to people of the opposite biological sex, as they refer to it, in restrooms. And, and I think the use of the term biological sex is itself a misnomer because gender identity is not just psychological, it's biological as well. And there's increasing evidence uh, of this, that there is a biological basis for gender identity. So uh, when we're talking about biological sex, they're, they're, they're really using that term, I think, to try to signal their view that a transgender man is really just a man in a dress. The point is that people, that, that the issue of gender identity is complicated, but it certainly is an issue that relates to sex. And it's certainly logical, the position that the EEOC has taken and that the Education Department has taken and the Justice Department has taken now on behalf of the Obama administration, is that gender identity is a real thing. And that when people transition, when they decide to live their lives as the gender they identify with, they should be treated as being that gender. And this isn't some flippant thing that, you know, today suddenly you wake up and say, ah, I'm a man, even though it says I'm a woman on my birth certificate. That's, that's not how it works. It's a process. It takes a lot of time to work it through. People come to this realization over time. There's usually some internal struggle about it uh, and accepting it partly because of the stigma that society puts on it. And then there is the interaction with the medical profession and there are hormone treatments and there may be surgery. Uh, there's certainly a, a change in the way that someone lives their life. Uh, so this isn't something like, you know, I wake up and say, oh, I always like chocolate ice cream. Now I think I like vanilla ice cream. It's not like that. It's not a, a flip choice. Uh, so at any rate, there's this case pending in North Carolina. Uh, the uh, governor issues the executive order. Then the Justice Department gets in touch with the governor and uh, with the state university system and says, you know, this HB2, it violates Title Seven, And it violates Title Nine in the state university system and in the school districts of the state. And it probably violates the Equal Protection Clause because we have at least one federal circuit court decision from the 11th Circuit saying that discrimination against a transgender individual is a form of sex discrimination which gets heightened scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause. So you put these all together and the administration says, hey guys, we're giving you a deadline to tell us what you're going to do about this. Uh, on the deadline date, uh, which was, uh, I believe, May 9th, uh, Governor McCrory responded with defiance. And he filed a lawsuit against the federal government seeking a declaratory judgment that HB2 did not violate Title VII or Title IX or the Equal Protection Clause. 
and uh, the Republican leaders in the state legislature filed their own lawsuits, which have since been consolidated with McCrory's lawsuit. Uh, so uh, when McCrory responded with defiance, the administration responded in kind. Uh, Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, held a press conference. She blasted North Carolina. She stated solidarity with transgender people on the part of the administration, and she announced, and we're going to sue North Carolina. And that suit was put on file the next day. There's an additional lawsuit pending in North Carolina brought by Alliance Defending Freedom on behalf of parents and children, uh, making the same arguments. It's basically a copycat lawsuit. Mm. Uh, some of these were filed in different district courts in North Carolina, but they're being consolidated into one, one district court. But, uh, of course, we have the ongoing story of Mississippi, mm. and uh, I think we, we talked about that last month. But in Mississippi, there are several lawsuits on file now, and it looks like they're all being consolidated before Judge Reeve, who was the district judge who wrote the marriage equality decision for Mississippi. So we hold out hopes for that. Uh, But, of course, anything he rules on will go to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit is rather conservative. Robbie Kaplan let me know yesterday at an event that the arguments are going to be June 20th and 21st. Uh, so they're coming on up the quick. preliminary injunction. Yes. Yeah. There's so. a one case involves reopening the original marriage case to say that this new law violates the final order in that in the marriage case, and the other one is an establishment clause challenge to the law. Right. So, so, so that's a new a new angle. Yes. And, and that's possible because the Mississippi law, uh, you know, one has to wonder about the legal advice that the legislative leaders and the governor are getting in, in Mississippi, uh, but they specifically privilege religious objections to same-sex marriage and religious objections to gender identity. Uh, those really, are specifically privileged. Yeah. So, so it's, it's sort of taking certain religious views because some religious uh, people in this country accept gender identity and accept same-sex marriage. Yeah. There are churches and, and synagogues that will perform these right. ceremonies. I don't know that there are mosques yeah, that, are, that are performing same-sex marriages. We right. might get there. So... Uh, they're, they're uh, favoring particular religious views, and for the government to do that presents a real challenge to our law against establishment of religion or favoring one religion over another. Uh, so that will be a very interesting case to watch. But another state which has generated litigation out of this is Texas. Now, uh, Texas officials reacted with hysteria to the administration's action, uh, which took place later in May. Uh, the administration sent a letter on the joint letterheads of the Justice Department and the Education Department to every school district in the United States. Uh, Evidently, they keep a mailing list. (laughs) And so they sent a letter to all of these school districts throughout the country advising them of the interpretation of Title IX that the Education and Justice Departments have now agreed upon and have advised them that in order to comply with this, They must uh, extend equal educational opportunity to transgender students. And that includes providing them access to appropriate restroom and locker room facilities. Uh, It means allowing them to use the name that they prefer to use, to be identified by the gender that they prefer. Uh, And this is a point of of quite a bit of argumentation and contention. Uh, In general sex reassignment procedures and surgery are not available to minors. And yet, when we're talking about public schools, we're talking about minors. Um, Some high school seniors are over 18. But 
by and large, we're talking about minors. That's we're right. talking about transgender kids who are coming out about their gender identity at the age of 13, 14, 15. Uh, and so it's impossible for them to complete gender transition. So they are presenting as their, the gender that they identify with while still having the physical genitals of the gender they were identified with at birth. And so this is raising red flags all over the place for school administrators, but nowhere more than in Texas, where the governor and the attorney general and the lieutenant governor have been urging local school districts to defy the administration's position. And in fact, they went shopping for a district that was willing to be a plaintiff. And uh, they, uh, they were hoping to find a school district in uh, the Northern District of Texas because they have a federal district judge in the Northern District of Texas who they thought would be very hostile to the administration's position. So they were shopping. And uh, the, the Wichita Falls School District, which is a large school district, refused to go along with them. And the, and the principal of the high school said, no, I'm going to go along with the administration's position. But they found a small school district uh, that was willing to uh, to be a co-plaintiff, uh, and that, I guess, is the most plausible way for them to get standing in the case, or at least to have a running argument that they have standing to bring this case. Uh, so they filed a lawsuit, uh, the Attorney General of Texas, uh, and he was able to sign up, I think, 11 other states, and a few more have said they're going to sign on. So we're talking about a significant number of states that are going to be uh, part of State of Texas versus United States, which is now pending in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas and Wichita Falls, in which they are seeking uh, a declaration that uh, the administration's interpretation of Title IX is not supported by the statute and the regulations under the statute. Uh, part of the argument, which was originally... Uh, asserted by Alliance Defending Freedom and now has been taken up in many of these other cases is that under the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, it is necessary to publish a regulation if you want to change rather drastically the interpretation of a statute. And then that regulation would be subject to challenge directly in the federal circuit courts under the APA. Uh, and so the argument is by just announcing this as an interpretation in guidance or a letter or a bulletin of some sort, Rather than a formal regulation, the uh, administration is violating the APA. Uh, and you know, the case could be totally disposed of on that basis. I think there's a possibility uh, that the court might find that the plaintiffs don't have standing in the uh, Texas case and that the case is not ripe for any kind of judicial uh, proceedings because so far the administration hasn't moved against any school districts in Texas. And it's unclear if that school district has any transgender students. Right. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some question of that. But yeah, they could move against the district that's adopted a policy. Uh, but that district, and that district has adopted a policy. But there's no one to whom it applies at this time. So, you know, it's a very interesting situation there. So that case is moving forward. Uh, the case in Illinois is moving forward. The case in North Carolina is moving forward. As you've said, the case in Mississippi is going to be argued. Uh, so chances are when we do our next podcast, which will probably be late in July, since we do a midsummer issue of Law Notes mm -hmm. instead of a July issue, by then we may have some rulings on these preliminary injunctions because there's also a preliminary injunction motion on file in the North Carolina case, uh, and that should come up soon. And our, we should update folks on the Fourth Circuit. Right. Okay. Fourth Circuit. We reported last month, I believe, the Fourth Circuit ruled in April 
that the education department's interpretation of Title IX should be deferred to by the federal courts uh, under uh, an existing case law. Uh, there's a Supreme Court decision, Auer versus Robbins, uh, which discusses the conditions under which federal courts should defer to the uh, interpretive uh, position of federal agencies articulated in situations where the statute and the regulations are ambiguous. Uh, and the dispute there between the district judge and the Fourth Circuit was whether the regulations under Title IX were ambiguous or not. Uh, the, the district judge said he saw no ambiguity, and he dismissed the Title IX claim that was brought on behalf of Gavin Grimm, a transgender uh, teenager in a Virginia school, in Gloucester School District. And... Uh, that was appealed, and the Fourth Circuit said, no, the district judge should have deferred to it because we find an ambiguity. The statute forbids sex discrimination. The regulations authorize sex-segregated restrooms, but nowhere does either the statute or the regulations say anything about how to handle transgender issues. And since we have accepted the EEOC's uh, rationale that uh, if, uh, if you have a transgender boy you have to treat that person as a boy and allow them access to the boys' room. Otherwise, you discriminate based on his sex. Uh, we accept that interpretation. Uh, we will find that interpretation to be a rational way to construe the requirements of Title IX. Uh, and so the uh, Court of Appeals said, yeah, that's not a clearly erroneous interpretation. We should defer to it. And they remanded. Uh, the school district asked for on-bank review. It was turned down on May 31st. Then the school district filed a motion asking for a temporary stay while they file a cert petition in the Supreme Court, as they were encouraged to do by Circuit Judge Niemeyer in his dissent from the denial of on-bank review. Uh, and the uh, Fourth Circuit has said no to that. So they're going to have to ask the Supreme Court if they want Which to Which, of stay. course, is now as eight members. So Has eight members, but in order to issue a stay, I think they need five. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see yeah. if they get a stay out of the court. Although, you know, back during the marriage equality battles, uh, the court was granted several stays. Uh, and I think it's possible that the court might grant a stay here, if only because they see this as a spreading issue. There are lawsuits in several different circuits going on. And the likelihood that they will end up taking an appeal in this case, I think, has been ratcheted up a little bit by the multiplicity of lawsuits. Uh, so it's possible that the next major LGBT rights case to go to the Supreme Court will be addressing the issue of whether gender identity discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. That's a possibility. All right. All right. Uh, we will take another short break. And when we return, we'll talk about some interesting, speaking of the Supreme Court, interesting Obergefell retroactivity issues that have popped up in the courts. We are back to update our listeners on some thorny issues involving the retroactivity of the U.S. Supreme Court's 2015 Obergefell decision that we have seen several courts wrestling with as of late. Can you tell us about two of these cases, Art? Yeah. In the June issue of LGBT Law Notes, we discussed two recent decisions where uh, the question was whether people who couldn't marry or whose marriages wouldn't be recognized prior to Obergefell have any benefit now 
from the Supreme Court's having held that it's unconstitutional not to let same-sex couples marry or not to recognize their validly contracted marriages. Uh, and this kind of came up in two rather interesting factual situations. Uh, one of them, uh, we have a tax court decision from New Jersey issued on May 11th, and the other, a uh, decision by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals issued on April 20th. Uh, so I'll, I'll take up the uh, New Jersey decision first. Uh, and with apologies in advance, uh, because I really have trouble pronouncing the, uh, the plaintiff's name here, uh, Ruxapol Jiwankol, I think. Uh, so uh, Mr. Jiwankol and Maurice Connolly, Jr., became a couple in 1983, and their, uh, their partnership lasted for a long, long time. It was, it was ended when Mr. Connolly suddenly died on June 2nd, 2014. Uh, but the story is that when New Jersey passed a law allowing domestic partnerships, these men registered as domestic partners. That was in 2004. And at the time, of course, there was litigation in New Jersey seeking marriage equality. That eventuated in a case, Lewis versus Harris, uh, opinion of the New Jersey Supreme Court uh, in 2006, holding that same-sex couples were entitled to all the rights and benefits of marriage under the New Jersey law, but it was up to the legislature to decide how to give it to them, and the legislature gave them a Civil Union Act. Well, Mr. Joancall and Mr. Connolly did not register as civil union partners because, as they told the Philadelphia Inquirer in an article published on December 8th, they felt that the civil union law was not equal, that civil unions were not equal to marriage, not the equivalent to marriage, that they did not comport any standing to challenge the uh, uh, refusal of the federal government to recognize same-sex marriages, uh, that it was sort of marriage light and they were not going to register. Uh, after the Supreme Court decided the Windsor case in 2013, which required the federal government to recognize same-sex marriages, things really moved to New Jersey uh, because there was already a lawsuit on file challenging the civil union law as denying equal protection to same-sex couples in New Jersey because it didn't carry all the rights and benefits of marriage. It really couldn't because of the federal government's refusal to recognize same-sex marriages uh, and certainly to recognize civil unions. Well, after the Windsor decision, all of a sudden, the federal government was recognizing same-sex marriages but not civil unions. And so the uh, case trying to reopen Lewis versus Harris and get the courts to address the remaining inequities suddenly burst into life. And within months, same-sex marriage became available in New Jersey when the Supreme Court refused to stay the district court's decision holding that there was an equal protection violation. Uh, so that went into effect October 21st, 2013. Same-sex couples could marry in New Jersey. So Mr. Jewancola and Mr. Connolly got into action. They decided they wanted to have a June wedding, very romantic. Uh, they notified family and friends. They made arrangements, catering, everything else. Uh, end of May, they went and they got their marriage license, on which they indicated the ceremony was to take place on June 8th. Well, those who were paying attention at the beginning of this talk know that Mr. Connolly died on June 2nd. It was sudden. It was unexpected. When he died, these men were not married. They were domestic partners under New Jersey law, but they were not civil union partners. 
All right, one of the consequences of that is the tax consequences. Uh, it seems that uh, under the domestic partnership law that they had registered under, any direct bequest from Mr. Connolly to Mr. Joancall would be exempt from taxation as uh, the request to uh, a bequest to a spouse equivalent. However, however, under the domestic partnership law, there was no change made to the state's estate tax law. And under the estate tax law, uh, the money that is to be inherited by a surviving spouse is deductible from the estate for purposes of taxation. So you don't have to pay tax on it. Uh, but unfortunately, because these men were not married, there's no marital deduction. Uh, so following uh, the appropriate way that you can test these tax things, Mr. Joe and Cole paid the tax. Uh, it came to over $100,000, and then he filed for a refund. And his argument was that because they were entitled to all the rights and benefits of marriage, one of the rights and benefits of marriage is, of course, the marital deduction, and they should get that. And they were turned down by the tax division, and then they brought it to the tax court. And unfortunately, the tax court ruled against them. Uh, the uh, presiding judge of the tax court, Patrick D. Almeida, denied the claim, saying that they could have married back in October when marriage became available, and they could have registered as civil part union partners, uh, and that would have given them the marital deduction as well. Uh, under that statute. He said, there is a long-standing policy in this state of not according statutory rights to couples who have not fulfilled the statutory requirements for a government-sanctioned relationship. So the problem here was the timing, unfortunately. They had made the plans, they had gotten the license, but they were not able to take the, that last step, and unfortunately the court was unwilling to sort of backdate and, and say that they should be treated as married. Uh, so, uh, no retroactive application of Obergefell here. Uh, the other case, uh, which had gotten uh, a bit of publicity, involved a couple of Alabama residents, Paul Hart and David Fancher, who had been living together as partners for many years. Uh, when they went to Massachusetts to get married on May 20th, 2011, uh, as of that date, Alabama did not recognize same-sex marriages. Uh, they had a state constitutional amendment against it. Uh, but uh, when they moved back to Alabama, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Fancher died in an auto accident just months later. Uh, so they were married under Massachusetts law, but it wasn't recognized under Alabama law. And of course, at that time, it wouldn't be recognized under federal law either. Uh, now, the uh, accident was a collision with the United Parcel Service tractor-trailer, and uh, the estate, uh, because evidently uh, Fancher died without a will, uh, an administrator was appointed for the estate. The estate filed a wrongful death action against United Parcel Service. Uh, now, Fancher was survived by his mother, and the question immediately arose what about the proceeds of a wrongful death lawsuit? Who gets it? Normally, a surviving spouse gets it. Under Alabama law, regardless of whether there's a will or what the will says, the proceeds of a wrongful death action pass to heirs at law under the intestacy statute. And if someone dies without a spouse, surviving parents get it all under Alabama law. 
if someone dies with a spouse, the spouse gets the first $100,000 of any wrongful death recovery, and the remainder is divided evenly between the surviving spouse and the surviving parents. Uh, so in this case, uh, Pat Fancher, uh, the mother of, uh, of David Fancher, insisted she's entitled to the whole thing, and the settlement was evidently quite substantial, over a million dollars. Uh, she says, I'm entitled to the whole thing because at the time of death, Alabama did not recognize the marriage, and in fact, the death certificate that was issued on Mr. Fancher's death said that he had never been married, even though he had been married just months before. Wow. Okay. So uh, Mr. Hard filed suit in federal court. He wanted a declaration that Alabama's refusal to recognize their marriage was unconstitutional. Uh, he wanted an injunction uh, requiring Alabama to issue a new death certificate showing that Mr. Hart and Mr. Fancher were married at the time of Fancher's death. And he also wanted an injunction ordering the estate to distribute to him the spousal share of any recovery in the United Parcel case. Well, the United Parcel case was settled for a lot of money. And the money was being held in trust by the administrator of the estate while the courts sorted out who gets it. All right. So uh, after the Windsor case in 2013, of course, litigation was instigated all through the country for marriage equality in all the states that didn't have it yet at that point. And there was a lawsuit in Alabama. And in Alabama, a federal district judge, uh, Callie Grenade, ruled on January 23, 2015, in the case of Searcy versus Strange, that Alabama's refusal to recognize out-of-state same-sex marriages violate the 14th Amendment. Uh, and she refused to stay that, and the Court of Appeals refused to stay her decision. And so the state of Alabama complied with their decision, and among other things, they issued a new death certificate showing that Mr. Fancher had been married at his death. Okay, well, at that point, the Attorney General, Mr. Strange, Luther Strange, said, well, this lawsuit against me, because the, uh, the lawsuit uh, filed by Mr. Hard uh, was against Alabama officials as well as the administrator of the estate. Uh, so Attorney General Strange says, well, you know, I think that the case against me is moot now because we've issued the death certificate and the state has recognized now the marriage and uh, the district judge in the case filed by Mr. Hard uh, allowed the administrator of the estate, Mr. Fancher, to intervene to pay over the money that he was holding into the district court so the district court could decide what to do with it. And the district judge authorized its release. Uh, so at this point, it seems like everything was taken care of, except Pat Fancher wants it all. So she filed an appeal in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. She said that the district court should have paid the money over to her because she said, I am the surviving parent, and at the time of his death, Alabama did not recognize the marriage, blah, 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 blah. You know, she repeats all her arguments again. So it comes up to the 11th Circuit, and the 11th Circuit says, well, you know, here's the problem we have with this appeal. She's appealing a decision by the district judge that the case was moot, and she doesn't make any substantive argument that it wasn't moot. In fact, it was moot. The case was brought by Mr. Hard. He was seeking three forms of relief, and he got them. He got the new death certificate for his husband. He got uh, the recognition of his marriage by the state of Alabama, and he got the money. 
So his case is moot. And that the district judge did not err by authorizing the money to be released to him because the state of Alabama recognized the marriage, which meant that there was a surviving spouse, which meant that the first $100,000 plus half of the balance goes to Mr. Hart. Uh, so this is not technically a retroactive application of Obergefell, but it's, it's sort of projecting backwards the right of marriage recognition to a death that occurred at a time when the state didn't recognize the marriage, to 2011. Wow. Uh, so it is a de facto retroactive application. Right. I think, you know, one of the things we have to think about is when the Supreme Court says it violates the 14th Amendment not to recognize these marriages, well, the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868. So that means it has always violated the 14th Amendment in a certain sense, although, you know, it's it's it seems kind of silly to say that because there were no same-sex marriages in the United States until, uh, I guess, 2003 when you could get them in Canada. And then subsequently some U.S. states recognized those Canadian marriages. Uh, so that's as far back as we go on actual legal same-sex marriages in North America. Uh, so it's a very interesting situation, and this is continuing to unfold. We will have this transition period. It may last for a significant period of time in which uh, it's necessary to project marriage rights backwards, for example, in defining marital property for people who could have married or maybe they had a religious ceremony but couldn't have a civil ceremony until Obergefell. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how these play out. Yeah, and hopefully they play out more like the 11th Circuit than the New Jersey uh, Tax Court. Well, I hope so. <laughs> well, the New Jersey Tax Court case can be appealed, so we'll see if something happens on that. All right. We will take our last short break, and when we return, we'll discuss legislative action in Italy that finally offers some relationship recognition to same-sex couples. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. Italy became the last Western European nation to create a structure for legally recognizing the relationships of same-sex couples. Can you tell our listeners what finally forced the Italian parliament to act, Art? Well, I think some of it may be shame. Uh, I think, well, you know, we have a very interesting situation, and, and normally I would just have a little one-paragraph thing about this in the international notes section of the, of the issue. But uh, it is rather momentous that we now, with the addition of Italy uh, on legislation finally passed on May 20th, Italy now, we have a clean sweep of the European Union. Every country in the European Union now has some form of legal status and recognition for same-sex couples that is, at least in terms of legal rights and benefits, virtually equivalent to marriage. And uh, the Italian law is actually very similar to Germany's uh, civil partnership law. But I think the final straw that broke the camel's back here is that the European Court of Human Rights ruled against Italy in a case. And the uh, high courts in Italy, the uh, Court of Cassation, ruled against the government in a case. And they all said, look, you guys, European Union countries are not required to have same-sex marriage. That is, the European courts haven't moved that far yet. But they are required under the respect for family life. They are required to provide a structure for same-sex couples that incorporates the normal rights and benefits of marriage. Uh, and the, the ruling that people now refer to is the ruling involving Austria, 
which passed the civil union law, and uh, the court said that's okay, but they had to do it. Uh, and uh, Italy has uh, been debating this for a long time, and uh, we are very lucky to have the benefit of Matteo Winkler giving us a complete historical retrospective on how this happened in Italy. Matteo, uh, when I first met him, was a law professor in Milan, and he is now teaching in Paris, uh, international business law. And uh, as soon as this thing uh, boiled up again, he said, can I write you the history so that people will have the whole background and see how it unfolded? And so we have an extended history here, uh, which we don't really have time to go through now because we're already uh, narrowing in on 45 minutes on our podcast, which is about our normal length. But just to say that this was hotly contested, that there are a few points on which uh, Italian LGBT rights groups uh, still express dissatisfaction. The most important one, that uh, in order to get this thing through, they had to omit the right of joint adoption. So, uh, and of course, it's also not marriage. Uh, it's a, Well, and it's not marriage. Yeah. But, of course, there are several European countries where it's not marriage. Right. Where it's civil unions of some sort, like, like Austria is the most prominent example of Germany. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the step from a civil union registered partnership thing to marriage is a small step, uh, which ultimately will probably be taken. Although the uh, the Roman Catholic Church still holds a lot of sway in, uh, in Frank Italy. Bruni wrote a funny uh, New York Times column about the you know this finally happening in Italy, and he quoted someone as saying that Catholic Church is their NRA. Yeah. In Italy. So I thought that was a funny uh, comparison. Yeah, and it's funny that in North Carolina, uh, Governor Patrick McCrory claims that the Human Rights Campaign Fund is more powerful than the NRA. Well, we'll see that contest now. In light of Orlando, we're going to have another battle about gun control in Congress. We'll see if HRC going head-to-head with the NRA will make any difference. Here. Right. Uh, but in Italy, you know, it's, it's a welcome step, uh, and same-sex couples can – both be parents of a child, they just have to go through a second parent adoption proceeding. And the uh, the Italian trial courts have already been creatively construing the adoption law to allow those. Uh, so uh, it seems that you can put together something that's very close to complete marriage. And certainly for purposes of tax law and uh, social security and various benefits and non-discrimination law, these marriages, uh, quasi-marriages, civil unions, will now be recognized as legally equivalent to marriage. All right. In the shadow of the Vatican. (laughs) That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in July.